Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Hello there, and welcome. It's Season 3, Episode 39 of Drive-by Cinema. It's a podcast. It's by me, Rick, and my co-host, Paul. The idea is that we watch the movies so you don't have to. Mm. Unless you feel forced to. Or unless somebody's forcing you to. You might have a safe word you could communicate to police if that's happening. (laughs) Or a duress code. Do you know the... Do you know the uh, domestic violence hand signal? Slap? No, no, no. Oh. It, I suppose you're in some circumstance where a person who might be experiencing domestic violence needs to communicate silently with people around them that their partner who's with them might be threatening them in some way or they might be in danger. Then they can raise it. Oh, you can... See, they can raise their hand like so, put their thumb in their palm. Are you watching the video, Paul? No, no, I'm not. Go on. Raise your hand, put your thumb in your palm. Am I taking the pledge here? That that is the symbol. And someone who knows that symbol will know that you can't speak freely, but you are being abused or threatened or experiencing violence, etc. And they might act on that. If you were in a bar, for instance... Don't you order some a pizza for Joe or something? Isn't there a phrase or something they're trying to popularise? Yeah, there is something about being in bars, isn't there? But you see, you could use that symbol over a Zoom call. Well, last week's episode, where we had a good go at Apple products, did raise some, some customer comments. And I realised that I had forgotten some things that I wanted to say about. Well, I'm... Um, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a shit flatbread. Not a shit sandwich. A shit flatbread. So I'm going to give you a bit of shit. What's it? Chibiata. You're going to give me a chibiata. And then I'll give you something nice about Apple products I remember. Okay. Yeah. I got correct advice from it. It's not Vegeta, it's Vegeta. <laughs> Depends what you're referring to. <laughs> Go on, Richard, stop. Something horrible, something, something borrowed, something blue, something nasty about Apple too. Here well, we I remember there used to be this idea that apples don't crash as often as Windows products, and I wanted there to maybe some that. truth in that. There is some truth. I'll come, but the thing is, apples definitely do crash. There's no question about that. But apples deprecated their their back their 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 back version, don't they? Very quickly. So it's not it's not the mammoth pyramid task that when Microsoft performs Windows, is it? Also, they typically control the hardware environment, Mm -hmm. whereas Windows has to run on a vast array Mm -hmm. of PC components made by different manufacturers all cobbled together in a unique arrangement every time, right? So in some senses, it's a miracle. Microsoft had to do that without ever once deciding to create a language like Java. Well done, Microsoft. Anyway, sorry, continue. (laughs) So... I remember having a discussion, actually, with an artist in one of the video games companies I was working with. Probably using um, an Apple computer. Well, yeah, exactly, you know. And I was discussing with him the reasons for using an Apple and stuff. I, and I was being very reasonable about it all. Uh, and I was pointing out, you know, well, 
they don't crash so often. So I guess that's good from the point of view of being in the middle of, you know, a complicated project and not having it go, go down. But he sort of rolled his eyes and says, oh, you know, oh boy, yeah, they do crash. Do they? And of course, the things about when an apple crashes tends not to be very helpful about it. Uh. Tends just to go, bong, you know, something has gone wrong. Press OK with a little smiley face. <laughs> and then everything disappears, you know. <laughs> Whereas Windows will give you a screen full of the matrix code, you know. Yes. Like memory addresses in hexadecimal and stuff. Which again is completely useless to everybody. But maybe to a programmer debugging it might it might be helpful. Who knows? The Windows messages are kind of comforting in a way, aren't you? Because I mean it it says it's like, you know, oh, there's a doctor in the room kind of thing, you know. <laughs> Reminds you that we're all human, doesn't it? Yeah, the, wind- the windows are like the doctor has turned up, kind of thing, or or you know the the the, the workmen outside the hall are not just drinking tea and placing signs; they're actually pretending to do something, kind of thing. There's there's a, there's an there's a aura of professionality about it, isn't there? So I think you know the Apple sort of systems tend to crash as the artists just get. More and more a resource intensive, you know, the graphics that they're doing, they get more and more on the screen or, you know, they've got a bigger and bigger memory load and eventually the Apple just gives up. I think Windows tends to crash for actually a simple reason, which is that there's just more software and mm. more kind of skanky software for Windows. You know, there isn't there aren't as many like freeware apps and stuff on Apple. I mean, I'm not saying there are none. But, you know, Windows, you can always get a bit of code to do something, and usually something shonky to do something just about, you know. And you look at your typical Windows user, you know, they're running PowerPoint, they've got Excel open, they're doing a Word document. Whereas a lot of the tasks that Apple users are doing, they're very, like, single goal-oriented. You know, they're doing the music production, or they're doing, you know, art stuff, Photoshop, or they're doing video editing. So they're just kind of doing one thing with maybe their email open. True. Because Windows users are just using everything. Your typical business Windows user has got so many Windows open, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll work. I usually have about, I usually have four desktops and about 20 Windows up on each, or 15. I fill up the top bar, basically, so 60 Windows open. And usually about four different Word files and, you know, three or four Excel spreadsheets open. So, I mean, Alistair made the point that discerning user of a computer would probably use some Linux-based system. And, right. you know, the thing about that is you probably can't get the business. If you work in business, you have to use Windows. You just do. You know, that's yeah. just, that's how they do it. It's getting better, isn't it, these days? You can do most things on... I mean, I use a Chromebook for most of my casual these days. What about you, Paul? You're using a Surface. We've talked about that. I mean, it's crazy, you know, like repurposed uh, repurposed Chromebooks are now 50 quid, aren't they? This is it. It's the disposable tech. Mm-hmm. It's really nice. And, you know, when you get a new Chromebook, you just sign into your Google account and everything like, reappears on it. There, that is, there is that good about it, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's great. Now, the good thing I was going to say about Macs is, mm-hmm. did, did you ever use, well? you use those? You must have used those Macs in the computer room in college. I did. I mean, I love the style of sticks. You know, as objects, they really were beautiful objects for the time. As you said, you know, looking back, they don't look that great, mainly because they've, the plastic has turned sunlight brown, yeah. Um, but uh, they did look amazing. And they had a nice click and whir to them, didn't they? they? had a different kind of click and whir to, to a PC. 
Well, I would checked out all the software that I could find that came pre-installed, I think, on them. Of that era, there was, yeah. There was one piece of software that I couldn't actually see a function for, mm-hmm. but in hindsight was probably genius. And I think it was called HyperCard. And the idea about it was, well, I mean, I can't, it's difficult to describe. Basically allowed you to put stuff on cards, sort of like a Rolodex, maybe. Maybe the metaphor you might want to have in mind. And you could link one card to another card with some kind of indexing system. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, that's basically like a hypertext markup language type idea. It's a, it's a linking system, like a link in a web page. It's not, I don't think it was internet connected. I think it was just on that machine. I see. And you would have your hypercard deck. I think people did like presentations on it, like an early form of PowerPoint or I keynote see. or whatever. So you could click from one to the other kind of thing. Yeah, but you could imagine you could do all kinds of clever things with it if you thought about it hard. I just you could time, create an adventure game on it, couldn't you? You could create a lesson, Paul, for a teaching environment. You could. A quiz. Just at the time, I couldn't really... I didn't have the imagination about, you know, linked lists and databases and stuff to mm-hmm. imagine. Oh. <laughs> anyway, this brings us full circle yes, because right. Tim Berners-Lee, Is the that- first web server, oh. was on a Next Cube. Well, we went back to 1984 for last week's film. I'm feeling the need to go back another 10 years. Let's go back another maybe. 10 years, yeah. Let's cue some After terrible this, music first. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, go on. After this... Musical Beautiful break. music. And we learned that Paul is in a self-deprecating mood today. Uh, he described his own music as terrible. <laughs> it is shitty. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it, Paul. It's perfectly functional. It's great yeah. 8-bit music, isn't it? No, it's not. Right, okay. So, uh, I... Th- yeah. Mm. When the lights went out. Went out, yes. Now, not to give too much away, Paul, but it seemed that this film threw you into a slough of despair. Yeah, I I couldn't really watch it in one sitting. I had to put it down and pick it back up later on. It was all a bit too much, really. Set in 1974, made in 2012, uh, but echoed really the times we're in at the moment, you know, rampant inflation, which was to get worse in 1976, wasn't it? It was to head up to 40% at some point, the beginning of power cuts. Not quite a four-day week at this point at 74. That came a bit later, didn't it? No, no, uh, I think that's wrong. I think in 74, there was a three-day week imposed for about three months. There was, you're right, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's interesting what you're saying there. When we discussed this film as we chose it last week, briefly, maybe at the end of the podcast, I can't remember, I did say that I kind of, I remembered as a kid Mm -hmm. having power cuts. Now, I think after the podcast ended, I think Richard said, therefore, I believe in energy security. I think we all understand after this year and prices that energy security is a fundamental issue of national interest. You know, there's no debating it, whatever political side or spectrum you come from. It's fundamental, isn't it, to any society? Completely. But what I was going to say is, it's not really feasible that I remember, not to give too much away about Mm. our ages here, but I don't think I could have remembered anything from 1974. So... There must have been other power cuts through the 70s later on. Yeah. I do distinctly remember. I used to live with my grandparents and my mum. Do you have a quality street box of candles? We did. We definitely had candles on hand. Yeah. 
Not only that, but my granddad had uh, a propane bottle and one of those like what? solo gas stove burners that you could just plug it into. So that even when the lights went out and we went into candlelight mode, they could still brew a cup of tea. (laughs) (laughs) Toast some bread. (laughs) We had to rely on a pocket warmer, you know. Put the pocket warmer in the cup of coffee. Trevor pocket warmers had like beautiful blue velvet covers. Power cuts were a thing. And as you say, it seems to me the number one like mission of any government for any nation state has to be to keep the lights on. Yes. Can you imagine, like, a three-day week, not having power enough for businesses for, you know, two Oh, so the reason for the three-day week is because they, they couldn't power I the whole so. country five days a I week. I mean, there were strikes as well, I think, but I think it was fundamentally about power. power. Uh, wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, gosh, it's crazy, isn't it? So I don't really remember. I do remember the strikes. I don't. I do remember vaguely power cuts. I certainly remember the box of candles, the tin of candles we had. Uh, but again, you know, childhood memories. I might they might be confused that with the box of fireworks we used to keep. Well, sure. this is it, isn't it? <laughs> Memory is an act of yeah. fabrication. It's uh-huh. an act of storytelling. I mean, we said this. I'm sure I mentioned this about Star Wars, didn't I? I, I said I have distinct memories of, memories of seeing the first Star Wars movie in the cinema. Hey, have you seen the remastered ET? They re- sort of re-released it. No, but I've seen uh, "Holding Back the Years" by Simply Red remastered, and it is really good. Well, why would they need to remaster? Because they shot it, in, you know, in Super Eight video or something, didn't they? Where he's walking down the streets of Whitby, being atmospheric with his Gansey or Aaron sweater on. Well, okay. Be that as it may, in ET. They replaced E.T. with a computer-generated E.T. No way. Yeah, and it looks absolutely so it doesn't shocking like a rubber, terrible. It doesn't like a rubber tie anymore. No, but it still looks horrible. It looks terrible. <laughs> Underscores my hatred for that movie. Went to Mick Hucknall's restaurant in the late 90s, early 2000s, and he did a wonderful uh, sort of uh, starter, which was like, you know, pan-fried tomatoes with some bits of paprika and garlic at the top. And they were really, really good. Do you remember Fried tomatoes and paprika. It was just a little starter, just a little Spanish-style starter, you know, in the style of McHonnell. What was the name of his restaurant in the middle of Manchester, do you remember? In the middle of Manchester. I know he had a bar near me called Barça. Oh, it could have been Barça. He did food also, I think. And it's near, it's in Castlefield, near the Castlefield Viaduct and... Yeah, so remaster stuff. At the moment, I've been seeing that sort of stuff on social media, what you're talking about, the remaster stuff, because it's doing crazy stuff now, the AI remastering. But what is out at the moment this week, what's doing the rounds this week, Rich, I don't know if you've seen it, is the AI-generated pizza advert. No. Oh, you well, you know how AI people can look a bit scary with their six or seven fingers? Yeah. yeah. Imagine that. At a party, you know, it's like you know, you know, Domino's Pizza Party. The whole family joins in, but it kind of takes on this vampiric effect because they've got fang teeth and seven fingers and that kind of thing. Then they start consuming each other and that kind of thing. Like it's, it's, <laughs> there's there's cannibalism going on there because I'm not sure the AI has been properly instructed. Then two days later, the same guy came out with a Bud Light advert where uh, it's like it's flaming hot and the barbecue sets light to everybody and it just. <laughs> <laughs> 
two or three years ago, it was all that friend script. You know, AI writes a friend script and it's so funny. You don't want the AI to get any better because it's so wrong. It's so funny. At the moment, AI video adverts are just so bad that they, they, the AI should stay where it is. It shouldn't evolve any further because they're just hilarious. <laughs> but we're way off topic already. We, we haven't are. even. We're avoiding 1974. I don't think we've even said the name of the film, have we? We have. <laughs> when, uh, the when the lights went out, yeah. 1974, yeah, yeah. many 2012. Uh, starring somebody vaguely famous, the male lead. Uh, I can't remember his name. Sam Hetherington or something. I don't know. I can't remember. I'll look at what it's said. Yeah. Paul, I, I don't think you should feel the need suddenly to start doing any research. That <laughs> <laughs> might throw people off. That's The lead is Stephen Waddington. Mm. Although... I imagine if they had a much bigger budget, it would have been Sean, Sean. Bean. He is like a Sean Bean light, isn't he? <laughs> not to cast any aspersions on Stephen Wallington, but he's not Sean Bean. That's the problem. I guess he couldn't have been in this film though because he did. The lead didn't die. Sean Bean always dies in all of his pieces. What we've got here is a good old-fashioned ghost story. Yeah, with a bit of UK kitchen sink thrown in. It's also very dour, isn't it? It's described as a poltergeist attack on a family in Yorkshire during the 1974 nationwide blackouts. The first thing to say about that is... Isn't it convenient? You know, oh God, there's a cause of electricity. No, it's not the power cuts. It must be a poltergeist. But actually, the power cuts didn't really come into it very much at all. No. I mean... Apart from the first one, they said, oh, it must be a a power cut. Uh, No, your daughter's being dragged upstairs by her hair. Well, no, they said, they looked outside and said, well, the lights on the other houses are still on. And someone said, oh, they turned the, the, you know, the electricity off at the mains. <laughs> I, I think there was another point where it was a blackout later on, but it, they don't make a big thing of this. Mm. This entire film, though, is a pretty sumptuous period piece. Yes. They've gone to extraordinary lengths. Despite the odd mistake, where there's the odd satellite dish and stuff. But it's a bit over-observed, though. Maybe so. Maybe the colours so. were very beige and very brown and very earthy, but they, it wasn't like it is there. It looks a bit like your grandma's house in 1974, not your mum's house in 1974. Uh, they move into this house at the start of the film, don't mm. they? They just moved in. I think they were saying it's a council house. Yeah, yes, it is a council house, of course, because, I mean, you know, uh, council properties, there were over three million, weren't there, at the time? Before the big sell-off in the 80s. But that family, like, they drive up in, what, to Ah. me, we really, we need Joey in here, don't we? But he had a really fancy-looking car. It's a Singer. Is it? A Singer? Not a car. It's a Singer, Richard, okay. Or as uh, Southerners would say, Singer. Uh, singer. It's a singer. We're watching Yorkshire people, let's say it the proper way. Singer. It's a singer. And uh, yeah, it's part of the Roots Group. You know the Roots Group? No. The Roots Group. Uh, the most famous badge, because I mean, they were the ultimate British badge engineers, uh, was Hillman. Have you heard of Hillman's? Of course I've heard of Hillman's, yeah. Later, I mean, Roots Group was bought out by Chrysler and became Chrysler UK. So if you remember the Chrysler Alpine and the Chrysler Avenger... Five yes. years of five years before that, they had been the Hillman Alpine and the Hillman Avenger. Uh, what really killed Hillman was, if you like, not state intervention but state direction, 
uh, they had because the Hillman Imp was going to be their mini beater, and it was a cracking good car, apart from the fact the engine was in the back. Uh, but still a really good car that won rally races, you know, a really good little car. Uh, but they insisted, uh, in order to regenerate Scotland, they build the factory up in Scotland. So a kind of unfortunate serendipity there. Uh, I mean, Scottish workers had no experience in building cars whatsoever. Coupled with the industrial rest at the time, that was been in the late 60s, that meant that no helmets were ever very well made. Uh, and so they just got a reputation. Although they themselves as a design were wonderful cars. But there's another problem. You remember the consolidation of British Leyland at the time uh, was that that meant that uh, British Leyland essentially owned all of Britain's steel presses and kind of held Hillman and Roots Group, their, their parent company, to hostage in terms of steel prices. Uh, and so the second major homegrown and UK manufacturers kind of squeezed out of business for those reasons. So, yeah. But mostly because they were located to a place that didn't know how to make cars. And, of course, supply chains were much more local those days. Uh, and if you're not near Birmingham then and, and Coventry, where cars are typically made, or Oxford, then, then you can't really make a good car, can you? All of which is... All of which is to say, is this a good car or not? Well, because they... my dad had exactly the same car, but badge engineered ah. to be a Hillman Supermix. Okay. Ah. So the Hillman Supermix was like your fam- was like was your family version of this. And, you know, it's the style of that car. We assume it was maybe seven or eight years old in the mo- in the movie at the time, okay? Uh, but really, our, our Hillman Supermix was really plush inside. Like mahogany-backed, uh, sort of uh, pull-down sort of uh, little desks. On the back seats, kind of thing. Uh, really plush. Well, so you can uh, do your work as if you get driven around. Yeah, and this was the Singer version. The Singer was the sport version of the same car, you know, badge engineered. Uh, so a little pricier, I think. Uh, Humber was also in the Roots group, uh, and they kind of made the bigger, kind of more stately cars that would compete with the big Rover V6s. Uh, yeah. So they weren't cheap, uh, and. Uh, they weren't particularly modern, but it does so look family, good, doesn't it? Well, it's, it looks immaculate, doesn't it? Yeah. So this family is moving into a council house, but he can afford this fancy car. Well, that's the point. I mean, council houses, there were three million of them, weren't there, at the time? It wasn't really it wasn't really a waiting list situation, was it? It was just another option for a living. I see. Yeah. Okay, so it's believable. Or is it just that the only 70s cars that survive are the real classics that everyone wants oh i so. see what you mean hmm. i don't know really i think the so idea was that he was driving a slightly old but classic classic car compared to the cars around him so stephen waddington is playing len the dad mm-hmm. he's got uh jenny <coughs> his wife jenny who's a mom, hairdresser and daughter sally who's a moody cow hats off to the girls that play the 70s teenagers here <laughs> Just so wonderfully represented that dour, kind of uneducated, uncultured kind of northern child from the 70s, really. Just so truculent and so ignorant, basically. By the way, have you seen the famous YouTube, TikTok, I don't know, whatever, video clip that's going around uh, where the kid... Is saying it's not funny because someone's drawn on her face. Yes. It's not funny. Has he drawn on my face? I've got school. School, <laughs> yes. Okay, so it's like that, but much more 70s, you know. Much more Dunlop Plimsolls and all that, you know. 
just it just reeked of I don't know. Wicker man, didn't it really? Now they move into this house, but the start of the house. So she's called Salah. So she makes a friend eventually called something else beginning with Y. I can't remember her name. A friend Lucy. Lucer. Lucer. The start of the film, though, it starts with some Latin chanting. It does. Odd. Odd for a 1950s built council house. And we see the pendant lamp at the top of the stairs swinging. Yeah. Slowly. I think we're being, although we don't see anything of that kind, I think we're being encouraged to believe that that, that a hanging has taken place. Ah. We learn later that it's some kind of medieval monk who found himself in a 1950s council house for some reason <laughs> and hung himself from a pendant lamp. There we go. We get a beautiful bit of 1970s teenager colour, don't we, at the start, because when they pull up in the car and Sally sees Lucy on a skipping rope or whatever, she calls her a spacker. Spacker, yeah. Which is a word you don't hear very often these days. <laughs> you don't. You don't hear slaphead, but slaphead's an 80s one, isn't it? <laughs> But it was really nice hearing it again. The other thing that they'd done really well was they'd got all the old dustbins. Oh, wow. Um, By which, for American listeners, I should point out, is a trash can. Trash can. Yeah, so uh, they meet the girls, uh, and uh, Sally says not unreasonably that Lucy smells of wee. Uh, what do you mean, not unreasonably? Well, if we had a 70s child, you, you knew that child on the estate that smelt of wee, didn't you? But she explains later on that she has a bit of a problem. She, she had to wear a diaper until Yeah, I she, bet. She'd be the girl that the knit nurse inspected first, wouldn't she? <laughs> and we, the, we used to hold that girl in particular contempt, but obviously these days we'd say, you know, my gosh, someone needs to call social services. <laughs> They're having coal delivered. I think they, by oh, their friends. Three bags. Yeah, he, he gets a freebie for his mate. He says, the first three bags are yours. By their friend Brian. Yeah. And he pops it in a special room, like a pantry kind of cupboard in the kitchen, which is full of coal. Now, you might say, what were cellars for? And what those grates in front of terraced houses for? That was to pour your coal down so you didn't have to lug it into a council house. Modern. The f- my grandparents' house had a coal shed outside, a low brick object with a kind of little drawer, no, a... A little like a drawbridge you pull up, like a little door, and you shove coal in through it. I see. Uh, so that's how they stored their coal. Although we had gas fires, electric fires, I don't know why. <laughs> it's just, uh, pick your poison. Let's have all kinds of... Uh, <laughs> let's have all kinds of fossil fuels happening here. Now, the house is depicted as being right next door to some place called Castlefield Woods. Yeah. Which is interesting, uh, I'll come back to that later. Deeply uh, archetypal, though, isn't it? Every small town has that council council estate on the edge of town that backs onto woods, kind of thing. So, I thought it was it was hitting kind of like uh, not just generate generational gongs here. It was ringing sort of all kinds of you know adolescent bells here, wasn't it? That we could all kind of share this, an experience. This is set in the Yorkshire town of Pontefract, by the yes. way. Um, they have a kind of housewarming, don't they? Where Brian turns up with his wife, with his wife Rita, he's taking pictures on his fancy doodah SLR camera. All oh, right, yeah. Which comes up later, doesn't it? It's an important bit of foreshadowing. This that he's a bit of a photographer. He has to develop him himself. He's saying because 
Maybe they take pictures in the bedroom. Who knows? <laughs> To make your own porn in the 1970s. <laughs> hey, the lights were long. There wasn't a lot of TV. Some of it was black and white. You can, ex- you know, swingers parties turned up in town. You could bet people were knocking the door down, weren't they? We then get more museum porn stuff, don't we? In Sally's bedroom, we see an old radio. Yeah. A buckaroo game and her two-bar electric fire. While she's watching Top of the Pops or something similar presented by Noel Edmonds. No Edmonds. And this, for me, was like really kind of... I was getting the sort of demonic vibes because I look at seven... Not Noel, not not Noel, not Noel, but the rest of BBC provision for children in the 70s. I look back at it now and think, God, that was just one Aztec pyramid of demonic abuse, wasn't it? You know. Now, she's awoken, isn't she, by the swinging of the pendant lamp in a room and she discovers that the buckaroo game has been set up and suddenly triggers and... For those Not by herself, know, of course. For those who don't know, Buckaroo is like a plastic balance game, I think. I never played mm-hmm. it. Where you've got a plastic mule and it sets in place. And I think you have to lay, load it down with baggage. Yeah. Like tools it's the bastard child of uh, mouse trap and operation for poor people. And at some point, when you're putting these objects on the, on the mule... <laughs> You'll trigger it and it will buck. No, it was quite a good game, actually. It'll fling all the objects off. Meanwhile, Dad and Mum are trying to decide on the colour of the kitchen suite and they settle on, of course, avocado. Or green, as Len says. But it was What's very avocado? popular. Yeah. The 1970s, and this is a stereotype, which I think is true, mm-hmm. is typified by avocado bathrooming, apparently kitchen suites, mm-hmm. before colour was invented, yeah. And the other very 70s thing is that mum has got loads of knickknacks and part of the moving in process is to get all your knickknacks out of your moving boxes and unwrap them and put True. them on I don't the see, shelves. I, you see, I, don't, I think they were a bit grandma-y for her. The blue ones were quite her. The rest was a bit grandma-y, wasn't it? You know? I think it would have been like lava lamps and stuff like that, people that age. Now, does Sally venture off into the woods at this point during the party, during the housewarming party? No, no. But no. she's terrified, isn't she? She doesn't want to stay at home alone. I mean, she's clearly been spooked by something because yeah. mostly, if your parents say they're going to be out, you think, well, hey, I've got the house to myself. I in fact, twice in this movie, she gets offered 10 bob, which I think is quite a lot of money, isn't it? You know, we're off I don't out. know. I don't know. I don't even know what 10 bob is, Paul. Well, after the inflation that followed the next few years, uh, the pound, in terms of spending power, will be divided as we're experiencing at the moment. So 10 bob but in today's on, money would be about five quid. But when was decimalisation? Wasn't that in 72, 73? Yeah, but you still call it 10 bob, 50p, wouldn't you? It's 50p. 10 bob and I don't think 10 bob notes were removed. They carried on being 50p. No. They were, they were removed. Select- I mean, you couldn't just remove all the coinage, could you? So 10 bob notes became 50p notes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'm, le- I, 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 I'm waiting to be correct, correct on that, but I, that's my presumption. You couldn't just remove all the coinage, could you, in circulation? So, yeah. Well, while her parents are out, she suddenly, Sally, is in, encounters a cold spot. Famous, yeah. you know, paranormal thing, isn't it? You can see so a So we're looking at the poltergeist here, aren't we? For those of us in the The know. light on the landing is swinging again. Oh, physical and then, manifestation must be a poltergeist. A slinky appears at the top of the stairs. Not that she's put ter- it there. Terrifyingly and dramatically descends the Not stairs. Not that she's pulled it, put it there and pulled it down with uh, with some nylon fish wire. 
Paul, clearly this is a paranormal event. Yes. Because slinkies never perfectly go down step at a time. <laughs> it's impossible for that to happen. So something's going on here. We know that now. Poor little girl's scared out of her wits, scared, 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 scared out of her wits, isn't she? Well, Mum and Rita come back uh, in some proper 1970s rain, Yorkshire rain, no doubt. Well, I was just reflecting on the fact that, you know, walking through the streets in the rain seems like a very 1970s film or TV programme type thing to do, doesn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And it has to be really heavy rain to see it, especially in the 1970s. You know, <laughs> high def means you can get away with lighter rain showers, but on television, it's very difficult to see anything other than a torrential downpour. Is Sally filming. waiting outside on these? She is, because she was too frightened of the Look slinky. at her, she's soaked to the bone. Get her home now, quick. <laughs> there we go. Was it? I think when they're home... Uh, Mum doesn't believe Sally's story about the no, ghosties, no, no. but Rita does. And then suddenly the grandfather clock, a grandfather clock, yeah. by the way, <laughs> yeah. falls down the stairs because oh, they put it at the top of the ladder. I've got to the foot of our stairs, yeah, as the grandfather clock does. Have you ever lived in a house with a grandfather clock? I have, yeah, but we didn't tell you on the landing at the top of the stairs. Well, I'm gobsmacked. I take it all back then. So apparently it was normal in the 70s. It was a 70s thing. No, definitely. It was definitely a 70s thing to have a grandfather's clock. And a cuckoo clock in the kitchen, <laughs> near where you kept the budgery out. <laughs> Come on, you must have had a cuckoo clock. Little Swiss people, that came, little boy, Swiss boy, Swiss girl that came out and danced around and went back in again. <laughs> Sounds unnecessarily complicated and annoying. And did you not grow ginger beer in little milk pots on the on the windowsill? No, Paul, I think you may be confusing your childhood with an Eden Lighten story, possibly. <laughs> Speaking of constructed memories. Come on, well, no. <laughs> and did you not make your own ice pops in the in the uh, chest freezer? What, by putting a cordial in a plastic yeah, cup? Also, aka a my, my area called tub lollies. I don't know what you call them in yours. <laughs> Ickies. Yeah, we, we did do that, yeah. yeah. But they Come weren't on. very nice. No, they weren't. They, always... <laughs> they weren't very nice there. But we digress. So, yeah, Mum's not convinced, and then suddenly something convinces her, pretty much a minute or two later. Oh, they hear noise of horses or something, and a tap turns on. Yeah. And, they, and then Dad and Brian turn up, don't they? Len and Brian turn up. And Dad's fairly quickly convinced, isn't he? No, he says lights were turned oh. off at mains. Oh, that's you right. Know, they're playing silly buggers kind of thing. Get to bed, uh, you now, kind of thing. <laughs> There we go. Okay, no, so he's convinced that she doesn't want to stay here. She didn't like it because of you know having to move and. So like it's that. the next day that, or the next, the next kind of scene that convinces the parents. Is that right? Another happening happens. That's right. I think. Yeah, the, the girl is watching the gallery on. Is it Take Heart on the TV? Yes. Yeah, they've really put in. They've really, they've really put some effort to make it evocative of the seventies, haven't they? Well, well done, really. The well thing done. about this film is, really, it's someone who really wants to make a period seventies piece and bring back all their memories. Very well stage dressed. Yeah, I don't think they're that interested in the ghost story. No, no, no. <laughs> so evocative of the seventies. Really well done. As she's watching TV, she sees. And remember that TVs in those days were made of a thick, curved glass. 
and she sees in the and very shiny. She sees in the reflection of the TV screen oh, a woman behind with her. like ru- blood running out of her mouth or something. So she runs out in terror, bumps into Lucy, the neighbour girl, and Lucy offers to go and blow up a Cindy doll. <laughs> that was so seventies. That was a really seventies moment. But it was it was Cindy doll, but it had an action man head on it. Yeah, and it was all naked. Which was and, kind of the, what the grubby girl that smelt of wee would do. And it was an action man with realistic hair and possibly eagle eyes. Whoa. But no, I bionic, don't think, no bionic arm. I don't think they were available in 1974. They I think the bionic man was definitely that. not available. Not that it was a bionic man. Not do you have a bionic, bionic man? You could peel back his arm to reveal his circuitry. Yes, and he had Whoa. a hole through his head. That came out of his eye with a lens in it. It would make things look look smaller than they were, amazingly. (laughs) 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 Sorry. Sorry, that was the six million dollar man noise I was trying to make. Okay. So, yeah, so they kind of bond, don't they? They they hesitantly bond. Okay. They do. Uh, Even though she smells a wee, she finds that she's a friend. She has a connection with her. But, yeah. No. So the next scene is where Dad gets convinced because he's in the coal hole. That's right, the coal and hole. And the door closes and something spooks him and he, he gets out eventually and Sally's there and he slaps her, blames her initially. I mm-hmm. think. But I think he realises it's not her that's responsible for the presence. He describes it as a spectral manifestation later to the reporter because he thinks he might be able to get some money, doesn't he, by selling his story to that's the Daily right. Express. Now, Mum is really convinced when she gets killed by a herd of bees uh, later. But the wasps, some- aren't they? Oh, there's something that convinces her before then. Does she get thrown around by it as well? She has a string shopping bag as well. That was the other 70s thing I noticed. Oh, do you remember those? Did I you do. remember one of those? Vaguely, vaguely. Like a brightly coloured nylon string bag you could kind of put in your That's pocket. That's right, yes. <laughs> but my mum had one of those trolleys that was tartan. Oh, yeah, everyone had a tartan trolley bag. Tartan trolley bag. <laughs> so although initially this reporter is not impressed by the feeble stories of, you know, lamp swinging, when he's making his way out of the property, mm. something tweaks his shoulder. L- epaulette? L- what's that Lapel. thing that's on the, sh- on the, on the oh, shoulder? The little button-down thing, epaulette thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. So something tweaks that on his raincoat, because obviously he's wearing a raincoat like all reporters did in the night. Gabardini, it's probably called. Yeah. And then he gets slapped across the face so hard you can see the marks. Bruising, yeah. Some kind of invisible force. Yeah. So he's convinced, I suppose. By the time mum gets back, dad is already selling guided tours of the house <laughs> for a pound a pop. <laughs> Quite a lot of money, about 10 quid a pop, you know. I mean, not bad. Well, when... Sally asks her dad just shortly after that for uh-huh. some pocket money. He drops ten. Well, she asks him for ten bob, but he drops a pound note on the ground, doesn't he? Because he's off with mom, he's off with the mum gallivanting again, isn't he? I don't know what they're off doing. Maybe well, they're off to organise the seance. We from, see at this point that there's a creepy guy watching them for a Morris minor. That's right. Who uh, reminded me very much of Garth Marenghi, but I don't think it was. And later meets the dad in the pub, doesn't he? He does, yeah. It turns out he's like your typical psychic investigator. No, uh, he's a parapsychologist. And then the mum is convinced because she's putting up wallpaper 
And one moment we see that she's just finishing, I think, or something. She put up most of it. And then the next moment, like we, we sort of, the camera turns away and we turn back and all of the wallpaper has gone from the walls. Ah. I think So I'm she's like, not even been stung by a wasp at that point. No, I think that happens shortly. Yeah. So mum's convinced too. Right, so everybody's on board. You know, there is some sort of demonic evil intent within the house, okay, that isn't a moody teenager. Okay, and yeah. But dad is down the pub and this psyche investigator, you know, talks, talks to him across the bar as dad's sucked a few pints. And uh, he kind of says, you know, if you're such a big man, why don't you get back home and look after you two terrified women? And it's the 70s, so at the slightest insult, Dad's ready to throw hands, isn't he? You know, I forgot how violent pubs were from the 70s and the 80s. But he kind of takes it to heart and his mate says, well, maybe this bloke's right, even though he's a complete stranger. Maybe you're not manning up. Maybe you should be back home protecting your ladies. And off he goes home, humbled and angry. Meanwhile, we've got a teenage kind of rebellion thing going on, haven't we, where Lucy... And Sally, they go out on a bender because Lucy's got a tin of some kind of booze. Have you ever drunk sherry? Yeah, sometimes from my mum. So, yeah. She's got a, an old-fashioned tin, like a 1970s can. It's sort of really tall. Did you see that? I didn't see that, no. Strange shape. Anyway, they drink from that. And then they wind up going into a concert hall in the town, Pontefract, presumably, where some kind of medieval cosplay event is going on. Don't yeah. know why. Didn't call it cosplay in the 70s. It would be fancy dress, wouldn't it? That was strange. Uh, it was strange. They nick some mead, uh, which they they neck, and then there's a little display case with a picture of a woman and a story about her. For some oh, reason, this is Sally, my one question about the movies. Where the bloody, where did the bloody pendant come from? Now you've come from this question. display case. In the console. I see. Uh, for I see. some reason, Sally is drawn in some way to this. I don't know. She opens up the display case and nicks the thing. Uh, apparently, we're supposed to be okay with, with a stealing from, from these better people. Than, better than from boots, like a lot of them in that era. <laughs> and then an overacting monk, or someone dressed as a monk who is overacting, throws them out of the, of the place because they're not really supposed to be there. Right. Sorry, about drinks in funny containers. Did you ever have the pot man come round and deliver huge kind of demijohns of pop in glass? And you put them in your pantry. I'm talking eight no. litres of orangeade in one big no glass jar. With some There's weird, no way. With some weird valve and siphon thing at the top of it. So, right, so everything's coming to place in this movie now. So we've got a, we've got a magical pendant that's going to be connected to some sort of spirit, okay? We've got all kinds of unearthly happenings. We've got a woman, a mother's about to be stung rabidly by by a flock of wasps. And, and the spirit has an, torn her wedding picture apart. Oh, my God. And we've got an investigator that's about to knock on the door whilst the parents are out, give his card to the daughter. He, was asked, he actually has to come and sit in and wait, didn't he? Okay, that's a very 70s thing. Uh, and announce himself yeah, to the Creepy parents. guy turns up, young girl, 15 years old, opens the door. Can we come in and wait no. for your parents? <laughs> <laughs> um, so mum increasingly is convinced because several things happen to her. Including getting uh, stung by a, a herd of wasps. She does at some point get a bit stung, yeah. But she also finds or has a vision of a dead girl in, a, in her bed. That's right. Blood in her mouth. And it seems that uh, their daughter's nascent pre-adult sexuality is not just the normal kind. She's having an imaginary... She's been assaulted by an imaginary 
lover or or or, or attacker. Uh, kind of yes, like that's yeah. true. That's creepy. She's also kind of friendly with a spirit One of the ghosts, as well. Which, yeah, yeah. So I think we have to reveal, as we learn at near the end of the movie, that in fact what's happening is there are two ghosts. There's a good ghost, ghost. and there's a bad ghost. The good ghost is the ghost of this girl who had the pendant. And she was preyed upon, like many girls were, I think, mm-hmm. by this uh, lascivious monk who, uh, who lo- hung who, himself eventually. But who, you know, preyed on them in the woods, cut out their tongue because they were poor girls and could not ah. And therefore, they could not evidence what had happened. She, but the last this of his girl victims, was literate. She yeah. was the landowner's daughter and she could write just before she died uh, what had happened to her, though she were dumb. So that's why the monk killed himself, presumably, mm, to avoid. He knew what he to come to him. Yeah. Or rather, he was he was censured by the Catholic Church, and they hung him and buried his name and buried his reputation along with him. Or something like that. We get the backstory about three quarters of the way through the movie, don't we? Anyway, seance, they turn up for a seance, don't they? Mr. Mr. Insulting Bloke in the pub has managed well, to wangle his way into his wife's. Or... Well, Mum has tried to go to the priest, to Father, yes. to... To get an exorcism. But of course, he says, as we all know these days about exorcisms, you can't do it without permission from the bishop. <laughs> it's probably sensible, isn't it, that you don't let any old priest just do a random exorcism for, for everyone's mental health. That's probably a good thing. Right. So is that why they go to see this, get the seance in? No, that happens independently, oh, I think. Okay. Uh, I think the, the seance guy is... Because he gave Sally a card, didn't didn't he? When he knocked on the and door, yeah, yeah. So I think the dad meets him later. And says, says, "Okay, uh, you can come into the house and uh, see what you can see." Anyway, so uh, the lady leading the seance, she gets grabbed by her own hands by her neck, but it's lifts much lifts herself up off a chair in midair, and I think the daughter gets dragged up the staircase with her own hair or something like that. Is it at that point during after the seance? It's pretty violent, you know. And uh, and all the guy, all the mystic guy can say is, "You need to get out of this house now." So there we go. They go and search out a new house, but it's not as nice as their council house. And uh, there's a bit of a marital where the husband says, "All you care about is your perfect house. What about us safety, etc., etc., etc." So that's some nice little British kitchen sink moments then. Sally has got an old-fashioned 1970s duffel bag. A she duffel bag, that's it. I forgot what they yeah. were. They were useless, weren't they? You couldn't even <laughs> fit a pair of books shoes. in them. Exactly. But yes. you couldn't get your books in. And then you couldn't really seal it with that stringy, cordy thing that would pretend to close it at the top. Be no use for the wet climate of the Yorkshire Dales or whatever it is. So, ah, uh, that's it. Yeah, so when Sally sees her mum crying, which she does because she's been stung by wasps and all that stuff, she calls the creepy guy, the parapsychologist herself. And meanwhile, Dad and his friend Brian, uh, they go to see the priest. They've hatched a plan, haven't they? They have, they have. They're going to blackmail him because we humbly Brian... Was... You. Can, we, can we please ask you to come and do, a, do an exorcism? He says no. He says, well, we might want to think about this then. Sorry, Richard, <laughs> what happens? Well, Brian has taken pictures of the priest with his housekeeper. He's 35 mil, yeah. 
This is the funniest line of the yeah, film. Really isn't good it? line. Yeah. What's he? What's she doing that photo? I think she's genuflecting. Genuflecting. Yeah, that was that. I, that was genuinely laugh out loud for me. It was really good. Meanwhile, the creepy guy has brought a medium with him for a séance, and he he has to give him twenty questions because obviously the ghost with no tongue can't speak. Uh, so she has to sort of nod or shake her head through the medium, and then suddenly. Spirit gets violent, uh, and the creepy bloke smashes the locket, uh, which Sally had shown them. Uh, and he says, "There's more than one spirit in that house." A benign presence, he says, and a, a girl who's trying to drive them away to protect them from evil. So, right. so, so, none of the actual makes sense. But yeah, none sense, of the yeah. none of what we see in terms of special effects would confirm that either. Either way. Right? <laughs> But there we go. So we have to take that as read, and we have to take it on an expert's uh, testimony. Yeah. So basically, they get the priest round, don't they? Yes. And what, now we get a Yorkshire version of an exorcism with two <laughs> random blokes holding Bibles and the priest squirting holy water from little squeezy bottles. Yes. It gets kind of it gets hectic in there, doesn't it? It gets hot in there. All kind of stuff carries on. It does. All the knickknacks shake, get very cold. Stuff gets yeah. thrown at them. Yeah, whole, 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 the whole shack is shaking, isn't it? It's like a beefy tattoo song. In the end, they prevail. Or it seems they prevail. It seems they prevail. And Len is outside having a post-exorcism fag. He says, if you two puffs ever talk about this, give me those negatives, you're dead. Kind of thing. And off the he spends goes. a lot of time outside having cigarettes, does Len. Yeah. That's not a 70s thing. It's not, is it? No one smoked outside in the late 70s. <laughs> no. People spent a lot of time repairing their cars outside. Yes, yeah, true. No, but you smoked inside, and yeah. the walls and ceiling would be covered, covered in, in nicotine. Yeah, <laughs> literally. Yeah. yeah, that's a fair observation. Uh, Sally and Lucy win a three-legged race. That's something else you don't hear anything of these days. I mean, they presumably do. they tried to make it an Olympic sport, but... He got rejected by the Olympic Federation. <laughs> Bring back tiddlywinks, that's what I say. And so everything seems to be ending well, doesn't it? You're thinking, wait a minute, there's a bit of anticlimax here. Are we going to end on a happy note? But, but no. There's a Apparently the, the ghost tail. monkey's still there. He's hidden and away in the walls. He drags Sally up to a room by her throat. And he lifts her up toward the lamp, the pendant lamp, that, of course, the monk's... Familiar with being hung from for some reason. <laughs> he puts a knot in the the cord, doesn't he? And that's gets right. Ready Invisible. to hang her. Well, he does hang her. She's she's swinging from the noose, choking, grabbing at the cord. And of course, I mean that pendant lamp's not going to hold a thirty-five kilogram daughter. Daughter is it? So, luckily. and indeed, she manages to kick the window out. And Dad is outside having a cigarette, ah. anachronistically. And so Dad runs upstairs, and he has a fight with a ghost. Incredibly, but I can't believe I'm saying that. against a wall or a door, doesn't he? Crashes out or something. And Mum bashes the door open, which was yeah, because that that ghost is clever. It's locked the door. She bashes it open with a 1970s Hoover. Now I've got 80s doors here, which are slightly more well built than 70s doors. But 70s doors wouldn't need to be bashed with a Hoover, would they? They had that shiny kind of fake wood effect, and they were hollow inside. Well. It would very much depend on what kind of Hoover, 1970s Hoover, she had. I think she had an, 
early 1970s like sort of metal Hoover. Now we get some actual special effects here. We get black smoke coalescing into an evil figure. And a, and a girl appearing to shoo him away. Now, this is all because and, Sally's thrown the pendant on the electric bar fire, and so spirits are being burnt. Is that the general idea? That is the general idea. And there we are. She wakes up. It's a bit like, you know, banging your two red shoes together. Like, uh, the electric bar fire's not on fire anymore, and the house isn't burnt down, and there's no smoke in the room. So we have to assume those were, those were paranormal phenomena that she was seeing. Now, Paul, at the end of the movie, they reveal something I... Maybe Alistair told me this, I didn't know, I couldn't remember. This was supposed to be a true story. It is based on a true true story based in Pontefract, yeah. Um, now, they were called the Maynards in the film, but yeah, in, real life, in real life, they were the Pritchards. So you yeah. know all about this. <laughs> yeah, and to this day, Mrs. Pritchard still lives there. No, that's not true. Oh, that's that not wrong. true. That was what he said in the movie, so I assumed it was true, the real people. Right, okay, so in real life, the daughter doesn't want to talk about what happened or something. I don't know. But uh, in the, the early 80s, uh, some paranormal investigator, because it was huge at the time, wasn't it? You know, Unexplained magazine had been a bit of an unexpected hit in the general populace, and you know, paranormal sightings were up, okay, and that kind of stuff. And interest in poltergeist was feverish, really. So it was one of these that allowed an investigator to make his fame on the back of. But it's not the famous one of the girls jumping off beds and apparently being in midair. No, that was the Enfield poltergeist case. Well, the evidence must be shockingly poor, mustn't it? Yeah. Considering what we actually see in this wild dramatisation of what happened, which is almost nothing at all. Like a lamp swinging, uh, you know, someone getting locked in a cold. Yes, aside from the special effects, yeah, there's a cold scuttle, cold scuttle. There's a, a pendulum a swinging nest. in the breeze and a wasp nest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> really oh, not the most and convincing a faulty evidence. Tap washer, yeah, and some power cuts basically, <laughs> and that's it really. So there we go. Uh, but as a metaphor for teenage female sexual awakening, you know, I still think the poltergeist is still quite a powerful metaphor, isn't it? And, of course, in days of yore, the other paranormal phenomena that was often associated with women was that of being a witch. Yes. Which I think essentially meant a single woman who didn't really want to get married. The story I read was that the family eventually, the Pritchards, eventually left the property and the home was bought by someone who I think might have been related to them, but who was the producer of this film, Whoa, Bill Bungay. No way. So he bought this house on the basis of these flimsy stories. And you've got to think, I think now you can go and stay in that house. (laughs) Presumably you have to pay Bill to do it. So maybe this film perhaps perhaps helps sell the the idea that this is a terribly haunted house. Oh, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, that's Uh, right. So the nephew of the family is actually the writer and director, Pat Holden. So he's a nephew of the the Pritchard. Okay. Well, I guess we're gonna. I I guess we're gonna take truck with you know the pandering, uh, the pandering pandurism to a cult here, uh, or maybe you won't. I I I, I wasn't no, too. Yes, I do. I do want to listen. Here's one thing that you hear all the time. I keep listening at the moment to a podcast called Uncanny from BBC. Because this isn't you know this isn't uh you know. 
paranormal psychodrama for the sake of movie, is it? This is played out as a real story, and that's what's annoying the way it crosses lines here and blurs lines for me. Sorry, yes. Richard, yeah, go on, sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I keep hearing uh, this podcast called Uncanny, where week on week, the presenter, whose name has temporarily evaded me, uh, talks to people who've got a creepy ghost story. You know, they stayed in a croft overnight and, yeah. you know, a, a cup fell off the shelf or something. And, uh, you know, he plays it up, of course, and it's all very creepy and ghost story. It's it's well done. Yeah. He always has on two guests. One is your token skeptic and one is your token paranormal researcher, you know. And, of course, the token skeptic will say stuff like, well, you know, when you're keyed up in that way in a dark Precisely, room, yeah, yeah. Shapes can look like faces, pareidolia, you know, and it's difficult to remember things and you can be in a semi-asleep state and you feel paralysed in a presence, etc. All very reasonable things. Obviously, you can't really explain every aspect of what someone says because most of it is going to be made-up memories anyway. And then, of course, you know, the other person will be going, oh, this is a really interesting case because of the, the way the spirit acts and, you know, the confirmation <laughs> of different people. It's, you know, it's like a real false equivalence thing, you know, where we hear from the reasonable skeptic and, oh, the crazy parapsychologist. <laughs> there is no skeptic involved here, is there? There's no skeptic no. character who's either, you know, in Shakespeare's... Uh, Merchant Venice. We do get Shylock. He gets a soliloquy once or twice. You know, there is counterpoint. Uh, there's nothing here, you know, to to present this as anything other than, you know, an advert for 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 weak mindedness. Here's the thing: in every ghost story, you know, every spooky horror story about ghosts and haunted houses, there's a scene or a a trope that always gets played out, and we don't think to question it. Because it's just normal. It's how these stories play out. Which is at some point, after all these spooky occurrences or someone sees someone at the top of the landing, someone goes away and researches, you know, and finds a bit of history. Looks yes. through the history books. Oh, look, an old lady lived here. Blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, a monk here. But Right. Just think of it this way. If you, you know, had a report or a witness of a person and you'd seen, it, you'd seen them and the witness describes them, and the police say we're looking for them for some reason. I don't know why, because they were a trespasser. If you find someone who's dead, you know immediately it can't be that person. Yeah. <laughs> You've eliminated them from your inquiries. <laughs> but in ghost stories, suddenly, all dead people have a fair game, suddenly. Any of them could be the person that you saw. I put it to you. So you can, an shoehorn, you can shoehorn anything in, can't you, really? I mean... It, well, it seems to present a, an impossible task for any investigator that now, whenever someone reports someone, then you now have to go and look for anyone who is alive or dead. <laughs> at, at, any at any point, point in time. History. <laughs> anywhere in the world who might or might not have been associated with this place or this person. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's a great shoehorn, isn't it? Uh, the way they discovered out, you know, th- th- it was just too linear the way that his. The historiography of uh, of all that was kind of put into the story. Like, oh, there's only one story. There's only one choice. It has to be this woman whose tongue was cut out kind of thing. Yeah. It wasn't great, was it? That said, okay, criticisms for the sort of uh, irresponsible lack of balance in portraying what is essentially a real-life haunting story without any 
any kind of uh, authorial voice to it, uh, is the fact that I found this relatively well made as a movie, really well shot, you know, beautifully rendered in 70s terms, and a fairly convincing story uh, with limited but effective jump scares. Let's do scores then, yeah. shall we? Mm-hmm. Let's do acting, maybe. Yeah, you want dour, you want kind of muddled, <laughs> kind of cloudy northern personalities. They did it. Eight for the girls. Eight for the girls, seven for the adults, 7.5. A cast of people who you think you might know (laughs) from other stuff. I think a lot of them might have ended up in the bill or something. Uh, Or or this is England or something like that. (laughs) I'll give it a seven. (laughs) No, really competent. Absolutely no complaints about the acting. Very convincing. So, uh, plot, storyline, etc. I'm going to, my down scores are to do with other things. The plot itself, I'm just going to focus on the plot. Uh, like I say, that backstory, the connecting of, uh, the tragic, uh, the tragic historical event to the haunting, I thought was tenuous and weak. Uh, the mirroring of the kind of weird medieval monk party they slope off to and the monk itself was kind of pointless. Uh, and, uh, the denouement was kind of it was there to battle anticlimax, but itself was in itself was a little bit underwhelming. So I think overall, I'm going to have to give a six plot. I'm afraid. I think you're right with a six because I think the bits that they must have added mm-hmm. uh, as dramatic bits are, are unbelievable and difficult. Yeah. Uh, do, are we really expected to believe that it was like a medieval thing going on in the concert hall that the girls wandered into that happened to have the story about the, the pendant, girl? yeah. And that she stole a locket with no yeah. repercussions? I don't think so. I mean, it, either it's one of those things that's so unrealistic that it has to be true, or it's just crap. Yeah. So for that, it's, it is a six. Okay. Okay, jump scares, horror, and the rest. What do you feel about that? Did it work as a movie? Spookiness. I didn't really buy it as a scary story because I, didn't I don't get really any buy the idea. I don't buy a monk like hanging himself from a nineteen seventies light fixture. Um, you know, I didn't I mean, really if they find lived in her an old farmhouse. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't really find her peeping into a keyhole and then seeing this girl staring back particularly scary. To be honest with you. I think, you know, the moments, you know, you know, the whistling of the wind in the woods at the edge of town, her stood alone facing it when she's alone in the house. That psychological fear did work at times, I think. But the horror itself. By the way, yeah. I don't know whether, I don't know whether, I mean, it's possible that the town has been more built up since, but if Mm. you look up 30 East Drive Pontefract on Google Maps, Ah. there is no woods near there. It's just in the middle of like housing estate. <laughs> like I said, the psychological thrill was there, but you know, in terms of traditional movie horror, jump scares, I felt it was lacking. So I'm gonna have to score it a perfunctory but passable five point five. Yeah, I mean the greatest fear was a nineteen seventies style child abuse thing at every yes. stage. And it almost was that a kind of spiritual yes. child abuse yes. thing was spiritual going child on. Abuse, yeah. Yeah. But from the the basic story, I it's quite cute. I quite like the two ghosts having a fight kind of. Idea. Yes, I'll give it a six. 
A six, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, poltergeistiness. Uh, How about period to... piece? It's okay. a period piece in well, two we have ways. To have five scores it? here. Period piece, great. Loved it. I don't know the other, <laughs> way, other way, but the way I'm seeing it, an eight and a half. What do you score it for period, periodicity? Well, I mean, it's very nostalgic for anyone mm. who lived in any part of the 70s, isn't it? Absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, they were missing a mangle, uh, not a mangle, they were missing a, an, a, a clothes dryer in the kitchen that comes down on pulleys. Uh, and a melanin or plastic hostess trolley that you could put yes, food on. Yes. Apart from that, uh, you know, I'll give it an eight. Chandeliers were big as well, weren't they? In the front room, <laughs> like from BHS. BHS sun chandeliers that tinkle. Yeah, actually, yeah. Uh, okay. So, what about responsible or irresponsible poltergeistiness? Poltergeistiness. It's what about the unexplained me- factor? It's irresponsible nonsense, isn't it? I've got to give it a four. Four. I'm going to go a bit lower and say a three. I didn't like the way they did this. Okay, they needed at least one character to be skeptic, didn't they? And wasn't there? Apart from the mum for ten minutes. Okay. Overall, I did, however, thought it worked overall. I really enjoyed this, and it didn't drag. Again, I really like movies when they're not. You couldn't above. watch it in one go. You thought no. it was depressing and. It was, it was depressing because the state Britain's at the moment, okay? Not because of the movie, okay? Well, it should um, make you feel better about things. I mean, we don't have to get coal off the coal wagon. <laughs> Although maybe string shopping bags are a good idea. Perhaps we should bring those back. Or suffer warm beer. All that warm beer they were drinking, yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, no workingsmen's clubs in existence in this movie, which I doubt, okay? Even though they were uply, up, semi-uply mobile young people. They still would have gone to a workingman's club, wouldn't they? They just hang around, hung around. Isn't in bars. that where the pub was? The, the, no, the it was a place pub. where the music. It was a pub. Okay. Uh, oh, it could have been. You're right, but it didn't seem to be much of a workingman's club. Okay, so it would have been packed onto the rafters in the seventies. Uh, all that cheap warm beer. So I did think it worked overall. For which, in which case, I'm going to give it a six point five. Yeah. Because yeah. it gets terrible reviews on you know various Rotten Tomatoes and whatnot. I don't think it deserves it, unfortunately. doesn't not, deserve that. Not no. a bad movie. It isn't terrible. It's not brilliant. I think it's six kind six of territory. For you. Yeah, I thought you were him. Yeah. Okay, done there and we dusted. Go. When the lights went down. Uh-huh. Well, that's nostalgia over with. I don't think we should go back any further. I wasn't alive in the 60s. <laughs> uh, Paul, then, I'll give you a choice of three movies. Yeah, go on. It has to be your choice now. You didn't like this one. Uh, I'll give you a choice of... Oh, how, Someone wrote these down. I don't think I did. I'll give you a choice of Nobody, uh-huh. which stars Bob Odenkirk from... I thought you were going to say it stars Breaking me, Bad, but there we go. Saul. Um, I th- I've heard it described as a sort of, uh, a sort of dad's version of John Wick. You have to explain what that is. What John Wick is? Yeah. Keanu Reeves is like a super assassin who, when people cross him, like kills everybody. That's men. Sort of, yeah. Nobody. Sort of gun carter. Nobody. No, no, that's nobody. Okay. Then, then there's one called Mr. Nobody. Okay. Which I think stars Jared Leto more than once. I can't tell you much more than that. Right. And finally, there's Men. What's Men about? Men is an A24 movie, which what? is about a woman finding all of the men in her that she encounters all have the same face. Whoa. Okay, I'm tempted by the last. I'm really tempted by the first. It's going to be Nobody. The by first Oscar. one. Yeah. Nobody. Bob Odenkirk. 
Better Call Saul guy. Okay, so nobody on Netflix at the moment, I believe. It is. Next week's movie. Do join us next time for episode 40 of Series 3 of Drive-By Cinema. Thank you, Paul. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. Ciao for now. See you on the next one. Bye. Bye.